and welcome to the Scotta Chronicast, the podcast which discusses all things relating to medieval Scotland. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Buchanan. This is episode 31 and is part two of my conversation with Dr. Lucy Dean about royal ceremonial objects. If you haven't listened to part one of this conversation, episode 30, I suggest you go do that now. Without further ado, on to the episode. Okay, so we've talked a lot about these, or the ampler (laughs) and this anointing stuff. Um, Are there other sort of objects um, that really would have been required for the ritual? Yeah, so, I mean, the ampular is one. It carries the oil, but anything, apparently, because a jug could have done, um, could right. have carried the oil. Um, so it's an, the oil an, that an object, was important. Yeah, an object <laughs> to carry the oil was important. Um, yeah. Post-1329 in Scotland, and probably earlier, um, uh, in fact, definitely earlier, um, a crown, a scepter, and a sword were three and we have those surviving for Scotland, uh, were three yeah. very important objects to do with um, with the coronation ritual. Um, and um, the question of when Scottish kings were crowned by someone else, so by a bishop as part of that anointing and coronation, right. is um, something that's quite um, debated because there are depictions of Scottish kings from quite early wearing a crown. And we Mm -hmm. know that when um, Edward I took items relating to Scottish kingship back to England um, after removing John Balliol from the throne in 1296, one of the things that he took was a gold circlet or crown, um, circlet mm-hmm. being the, the kind that's just around rather than having like the um, emp- empirical cross over the top um, right. and um, we know that he took a papal rose uh, which was gifted to William I in uh, the end of the 12th century back to uh-huh. England and that that papal rose was possibly made into a scepter by the Scottish kings and right. um, he didn't get the sword, but we know that there was one, and it may have also been a papal gift um, to Scottish kings. And we know that those objects, obviously, they didn't get them back, the ones that mm. ended up in England. Um, right. But it's interesting, at that stage, we know they had them, but we don't know how they were used in the ceremony. They do. You do get accounts that talk about the king being crowned, but they're often from an English perspective where their king was crowned. Um, right. And there's quite a lot of debate between historians about whether actually what happened was that the king placed the crown on his own head mm. than somebody else putting it on his head. Um, but he was definitely given um, the scepter and the sword, but arguably from quite an early period by secular individuals, by members of his nobility, not by a bishop necessarily. Um, and it's this you get this sort of quite strong contest almost between the secular officials and nobles in Scotland and the church as to who is the most important in in these yeah. rituals. And it's not until the introduction of anointing that it's very clear, becomes very clear what the bishop's role is, other than saying a coronation mass. So it's 
these objects, although they seem very similar to the types of objects that you would see in a English or a French or an, an, any other European coronation, is that they were gifted to the king potentially not by the church as we would imagine it, but right. by secular nobles. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it speaks a lot to the way that the Scottish um, inauguration and then coronation developed um, over time. Yeah. And I think one of the other really important objects, which doesn't survive, um, yeah. <laughs> partly because it was made of material, uh, cloth mm. material rather than um, gold or, or silver, um, is the royal robe. Um, so along, oh, yeah. with, along with them being gifted these items, given these items, they are also definitely robed with a with a a, a a royal robe a long royal robe and that is also something that is that is done by the secular nobles um mm. and it's really interest it's really interesting when it is found when you find references to it in the in in the financial accounts that come later um uh -huh. it's definitely the same robe that they keep fixing because oh, they, interesting. They, they are definitely paying for mending rather right. than making until you get to james v when james v is clear like this robe is just not good enough i want a long 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 robe <laughs> and he, his his enormous purple robe is the one that charles then wears in 1633 um but it is immense it must have it must have dragged for meters behind him um oh wow but um it's really he's also the one that remodels the crown the scepter oh. and the sword um so james v is king of scotland between 1513 and 1542 um he's another one like james VI that comes to the throne as a baby mm -hmm. um, so he isn't actually doing the big purple robe thing in his own coronation um <laughs> because he's only a tot um um when he is doing it is for his is for his wedding and his wife's coronation um so right. when he's an adult um so in the 1530s james is in his mid-20s um mm -hmm. and he starts sort of little fettlings with the royal honors in in the early 1530s and then it's uh, it's then really goes to town on them when he's getting married in the mid 1530s um <laughs> and um James marries twice in a short period of time, which is quite confusing um, oh. but because his first wife dies quite quickly. Um, and so his big coronation is actually with his second wife, Marie de Guise. Oh, okay. um, and um, he, me he essentially melts down the crown and remakes it with about, oh. I can't remember, I'd have to go back and check the weights, but with a significantly larger amount of gold. Um, so oh, it's obviously a much bigger crown um yeah. and it would have been but he does definitely keep the stones that were in it so we know that the stones in james's crown so some of them are new when james remodels mm -hmm. it cause it's that much bigger that he does buy lots of extra gems for it and right. if you if anyone goes and googles the royal honors um you'll see on the top of the scottish crown there is a beautiful uh sort of dark blue globe with a cross on the top of it uh, which sits on the top of the arches over the top of the crown and that's mm -hmm. definitely something that james bought 
um, from France. Right. Um, but there's definitely stones that are in it that are much older. Um, and there's, there's been some really good work done on, and it was actually done quite a long time ago, about the cut of some of the diamonds, which they've managed Ooh. to date back to the 14th if to the 14th century and could potentially be gems that were being put in the crown by Robert the Bruce or David II, um, or perhaps the early Stuarts when they're sort of blinging up their crown. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) But he also does various bits and bobs to the sword and the scepter as well. The scepter particularly, he, he extends it, makes it longer um, oh. and, and the sword, I Go think. Go along with the long robes. Yeah, yeah, long robes. Everything's bigger. Bigger is better. <laughs> um, and uh, he also uh, is one of the many kings that creates uh, a set of regalia for his queen. There's no surviving queen's regalia in Scotland, unfortunately. Mm. Um, but there's lots of hints at it, you know, where where it, where it was worn, how it was used ever so, ever so slightly. You get little hints at it. Um, yeah. Interestingly for Mary de Guise, her crown and regalia was only made once she was very obviously pregnant. Um, so oh. Mary de Guise <laughs> arrives in Scotland in the summer of um, uh, 1538, um, but her coronation doesn't take place till significantly later Um, and I think James having lost the first wife before she even before he was able to have her crowned um, was very cautious (laughs) second time round Um, but it also made it very clear that it was about their child as well yeah about his offspring Um, and I think it's one of the it's one of it's quite you can contrast it really interestingly with other queen's coronations in in Scotland because it's all about James in a way right. <laughs> that actually for James the 4th for instance when he marries Margaret Tudor he's incredibly reverent and he doesn't actually wear a crown during the oh. coronation of Margaret Tudor at all um Interesting. Which is fascinating in the way yeah. the way he behaves towards her is she. It's a very that's a, a different situation in that James the Fourth is a lot older than Margaret Tudor, um, uh, right? Uh, but yeah, there's um, there's always those interesting contexts that actually we don't often we don't often bring those into the conversation enough. I don't think about like the ages of people and, and when, yeah. when they're doing these things. And like you were saying about the, well, is the anointing in weird places because the child is throwing <laughs> the anointing oil all over the place. Um, <laughs> um, but another really interesting one with um, James the fourth and Margaret um, at Tudor in 1503 is that um the crown, the crown is placed on her head by a bishop, but the scepter that's given to her, James gives. It's part of the ceremony that James gives it to her, um, and I found okay. that really a really interesting sort of illustration of her the role of queen coming from both God and James, um, sort of the mixture of the power being vested in her by sort of a higher power in both divine sense and a secular sense um which i think is really interesting and the scepter tends to be linked to the idea of justice and um ruling well and often you see where queens have um political roles in scotland it's often sort of 
um at points where they are negotiating for somebody or they are right. they're petitioning the king to uh, support support a member of the political community and that sort of thing and it's t- yeah. tied quite nicely into that that James gives her the, like this symbol of that part of rule yeah oh, it's a shame none of that survives <laughs> yeah it really is it really is um I mean yeah, there's so much though uh, in terms of uh, uh thinking about um ceremonies aren't just about you know the exceptional surviving right. exceptional objects that are in you know the, at the point of becoming a king you are given these items and that is part of becoming a monarch I mean it's about every like we were saying about that idea of smell and sound and that tactile yeah. of ceremony it's about everything and what they were wearing what everybody else was wearing what the performative space mm-hmm. was wearing because they covered everything in textiles um and I just think that that yeah the object those those objects are incredibly important, but they have to be situated in that much wider sort of materiality um, of yeah. and, and sensuality, I suppose, of of ceremony um, in the round um, to fully understand how they were used and why they were important. Yeah, like the whole whole thing must have been, <laughs> and and the amount of effort and like attention put into these ceremonies is. Oh, there must just must have been a lot of people involved. Um, yeah, huge amounts. I think some of the, I think some of that. That's I think that's one of the things I found found most fascinating, and wish I had it for other ceremonies with Charles's ceremony, is yeah. because it's happening between two countries. Like the the conversation is happening, they're having to write lots of letters to each yeah. other about what's going on and they're you know oh have we got the have we have we dug the royal honors out of the treasury what how what are they looking like are they broken do we need to fix anything you know where, where are these things do we even know where that is um but then also yeah. the idea of the precedence in, in in the ceremony and you get sort of the real sense of how everybody is involved and trying to help and the probably my Second best example of that is the financial accounts for um, clothing and textiles mm. being made for ceremonies. Um, so when James V, for instance, marries his first wife, he goes to France and he's in France yeah. for nine months, I think, seven to nine months. And he takes a whole army of 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 craftspeople with him, essentially. So right. he is constantly on the go making things in this environment to sort of to make sure he's you know keeping up with the joneses essentially in 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 france and um and so he has his tailors with him he has embroiderers with him he employs embroiderers of the french king while he's there um he's got um uh, his like the the whole entourage of people uh, to do with his royal stables who are making garb for the horses so that he can go jousting um, and be taking part in these sort of physical um performances and things as well um yeah, and yeah. it's just phenomenal the amount of people that would have been involved in in making one of these ceremonies happen yeah oh two points there uh one when you're talking about digging out uh the royal honors from you know a cupboard somewhere probably a fancy <laughs> cupboard but you know still <laughs> I guess I, we often have it in our heads that like the king gets these things um, at his coronation and then he continues to wear them mm-hmm. throughout. Um, and 
I mean, I know that sometimes there's large gaps for various reasons, but mm. that's not necessarily the case, or do we know? Um, it's quite actually quite hard to figure out how often Scottish kings wore the crown outside of the coronation. Um, yeah. The suggestions that various kings went into battle with circlets on their armour, but that wouldn't be the crown from the royal honours, I wouldn't right. have thought. Yeah. Um and special battle crown. Yes. Um <laughs> and like so for instance when both James V and James VI go abroad to get married and there's no evidence that those objects go with them because when they take objects with them then somebody is paid to wrap them up, protect them, take them yeah. somewhere, uh, ship them somewhere, then they're in charge of them while they're somewhere else and all those sorts of things. So you've got that sort of record for tapestries that they take with them. So if they'd taken the royal <laughs> they'd taken yeah. the royal honours with them, I think there'd be a fairly good paper trail <laughs> of them yes. of them being taken with them. Um but you get a lot of bejeweled sort of velvet caps and things that the kings are wearing. Um and I think James the sixth <laughs> is uh, quite um quite quite likes a nice hat yeah it's definitely, it's definitely caps with uh james v sort of the you can imagine i think i think francis the first is probably the best one for a good picture of the kind of renaissance cap that i'm thinking of um yeah. but i mean they're covered in gold thistles and you know very obviously i'm the king of scotland look at all the gold thistles on my hat i think there's 35 right. that he has made and they're attached to his hat um and but I mean, so many of these caps that he's having made. So I think yes, headwear is important, but I don't think he was wearing the crown. He wasn't prancing around with the crown the, on his head. All no, the time. Yeah. I, I, I think that they were. So it's very hard to figure out when they were wearing them, other than very important events. Like we know yeah. that they, the crown and the royal honors were present in Parliament, for instance. And if you think about the power mm. of the king and the 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 idea of justice and making making and and the the making of laws within Parliament uh, and those sorts of things, that it's within the king, the king in in his presence as a crowned monarch, like he would have been in his coronation. That's a kind of space in which you can occasionally read from the materials because they talk about the king enthroned in Parliament sometimes, and you do get the image of him being yeah. in the in the full garb um, at that point. But it's very hard to really figure out when else they would be wearing them, um, and like a lot of other monarchs i imagine they have a lot of jewelry and jewels that are worn mm. for other occasions rather than wearing the crown so i think it's probably quite specific when they wear mm. it um and i think the other big thing to remember between james i mean between james the sixth and charles is that james the sixth has left scotland yeah. by 1603 so we definitely know that nobody wore them between 1603 and 1633. So it's definitely 30 right. years where nobody wore them. Um, and they definitely were damaged. Um, yeah. They had a bit, you know, they were having to reattach one of the saints on the scepter with a bit of wire. Um, <laughs> you know, they were having, they were having to sort of, oh, crap, I've got to make, I've got to make it look right. Um, <laughs> with, with bits that, that, that hadn't been, uh, that hadn't been, Cared, cared for which suggests that they're just not used but also that they're perhaps misused or that they're not looked after right. terrifically well which is 
equally concerning. Um, yeah, that's what I was thinking. It was like, well, um, how did it get so broken? Yeah. If it's just equally, they're, the they're, they're, sort of, they're sort of del- quite delicate objects with yeah and, and and i don't know how they were connected in the first place it may be that they it was a it, the way that they describe it makes it sound like it's been hooked on with a paper clip if i'm perfectly honest <laughs> but, but that was you know that's your mental image of what you're reading rather than the reality of it it may be that there were wires that were holding them in place and they were having to replace the wires that held the saints yeah. in place rather than the sort of imagining that i have of them sort of strapping together with a bit of masking tape and a paper clip <laughs> um but yeah, I think they definitely. I think the 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 volume of people involved and the money involved in some of these uh, events is it can be quite phenomenal. Yeah, I imagine there's just <laughs> yeah. I wonder how many. <laughs> it's like they go into debt for these ceremonies. Uh, yeah. Uh, sometimes no. I mean, I think I think that they they. I think one of the things I I would always argue about the Scots is they they do have a sliding scale of when they'll spend lots of money on mm. ceremonies. Um, the bigger the audience, the more likely they are to invest in it. Um, but equally, the ceremonies where we know they spent a lot of money, and it definitely was for the for the Scottish audience, not for a bigger yeah. audience. Um, but obviously they expect these things to be reported on and taken away. So um there's equally points like Robert the Bruce's funeral is a really good example of where they are spending a, a lot of money. Um, right. But um, as I think the only, the, the two ceremonies that I've managed to sort of work out and be like, okay, that's, that's, that's just a phenomenal amount of money. Um, <laughs> and because we've got enough records to do so, um, yeah. are the marriages of James the fourth and Margaret Tudor and James the fifth and Madeline of France. Um, so James the fourth mm-hmm. and Margaret Tudor, when they get married in, in 1503, James receives a dowry of uh, £35,000 over a number of years. Um, mm-hmm. He spends over £18,500 on material goods and provisions for that wedding. Wow. So <laughs> that 35000 that he gets... <laughs> Eventually, he doesn't get it all at once or in ahead right. of spending that money. Um, is you know, it's 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 well well over half. Yeah. Um, and then James V, while he's he get his um dowry for the from the marriage of Madeline is a hundred thousand francs. Um, and uh, wow. over t- again over time, um. Although he receives it probably quicker than James gets his thirty-five thousand, um, but um, and he spends mostly before he receives that he spends uh, between fifty-seven thousand and sixty-five thousand seven hundred and fifty francs <laughs> on the display in France and the acquisition yeah. of material goods. So, and that's not including preparatory expenses on things like boats, right? Yeah. Um, and he sails to another country <laughs> with a fleet. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, that, that, I mean, and a lot of those material goods, he's buying them to take them back to Scotland. And it's not just about that display in France. Obviously, he's going to take a lot of, he's going to take the majority yeah. of the stuff back to Scotland and decorate his palaces with it and, and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. But that's still a huge outgoing. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, there's a really good example from James the Fourth spends fourteen hundred pounds on two gowns for himself. Oh. 
<laughs> wow. Um, and I, I, I tried to put that into context when I was speaking to somebody else and like the amount that James V spends on boats. So James IV, sorry, uh, spends a lot on, on boats through his, his reign. He's buying ships, having ships mm-hmm. made. And the average he spends on purchasing ready-made ships is between uh-huh. 100 and and £1,000. Wow. And when he builds a ship, uh, it costs him about £8,000. So you think like two ro- robes of cloth of gold <laughs> will cost him <laughs> 1400 with everything i mean it includes the lining and the fur and everything else that goes with it but still (laughs) still like (laughs) that would be a lot of money for some clothing in in modern money like yeah and i don't i don't know i I have never done that whole calculator thing where you equivalent do the equivalent if you put you know how much is that in in modern money i I wouldn't like to think (laughs) no that's a ridiculous amount of money for clothes oh man yeah they weren't even the two he got married in oh they they were just for fun they were they they were in they were used in the like the extended days and days of of ceremony that occurred but they weren't what he got married in (laughs) (laughs) all right well okay I mean, you've got to look good. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for chatting to me today. This has been super fun. I (laughs) enjoy talking about random, well, not so random, but material culture (laughs) and um, all the objects that remain today or the ones that we miss out on. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me, Kate. It's been great fun to chat. The Scotta Chronicast is just one of many things relating to medieval history on medievalist.net. If you like what you see, and what you hear, consider being a patron on patreon.com slash medievalists. Thank you for joining us on the Scotacronicast. Please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow our account on Twitter, at Scotacronicast. Our music is Ex to Lux Oratur by Gaeta. Thanks for listening.